today on Ag News Daily. So Tyleria itself is a, is a protozoal disease, um, and it's found you know, across the world. It's, it's um, an endemic disease in a lot of areas. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Ms. Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing today? I'm not too bad, Mike. How about you? You know, not too bad. I tell you, it was another weird day in the markets. As of right now, while we're recording, we are seeing the Dow up 776 points, up 3.65%, and yet we are seeing the meat markets almost limit down across the board. It has been frustrating for our meat producers, and we've just had back-and-forth trade in the grains. It's been crazy. This coronavirus thing is nuts, Delaney. Yeah, and the market just can't make up their minds deciding what they want to do and how they want to trade that news. Right, right. It's nuts. We'll discuss it a little bit more when we get down close to the markets, but we also have news going on. Delaney, what kind of news are you keeping an eye on today? Well, actually, since we're talking commodity markets, I wanted to bring this to our listeners' attentions. And that's looking at U.S. export sales, specifically pork sales. We saw U.S. pork exports for the week ending in March 5th hit their lowest point on record and were negative net sales, about negative 45,000 tons of pork after Chinese buyers canceled quite a few export sales and export shipments. And this is the lowest record that we've seen since record keeping began for U.S. pork exports beginning in 2013. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about Chinese ports and whether or not they have the capacity to allow imports in. And it appears that perhaps they don't have, you know, their stuff together quite as much as they say they do at this point. Yes, or this is the cynic in me looking at the markets and the way things have been trading. They're looking at this week's drop in pork prices and they're going, shoot, well, let's cancel those past mm, orders, absolutely. let prices collapse a little bit, and then get some sales on the books. Yes. The Chinese have done yes, that yes. kind of move before. Wouldn't be surprised to see them do it again, Delaney. No, you're right there too as well, Mike. You know, you know hopefully that's just being cynical or... Well, I guess that might be optimistic. That would mean they're coming back into the market at some point. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yes, we will. Well, we've also got some other still coronavirus news. This is coming from the Equipment Leasing and Finance Foundation. They do a monthly confidence index for the equipment finance industry, which is a study I don't think we've ever discussed before here on the podcast. But they take a look at uh, leadership data in the world of equipment finance. Their March survey is weak, uh, substantially weaker than it was in February. Basically, it is at 46, which was down from 58.7 in February, so a drop of almost 13 points in confidence. Um, basically, what they're saying is 3.7% of executives say they believe business conditions will improve over the next four months. In February, it was 11.5%. 48% believe business conditions will remain the same, and 48.2% believe business conditions will worsen in the next four months. In February, 3.9% of these executives thought conditions would worsen. The coronavirus is really getting these folks scared about how much people might be looking to lease or finance equipment over the next four months. They are concerned about this slowdown, and these are the kind of fears that ricochet through an economy and really can slow things down, even if coronavirus ends up being a, you know, mostly non-event. Mm -hmm. Which I 
I feel like at this point in time, that's what it's going to be as a non-event. Well, we're all going to be watching Tom Cruise and Rita Wilson to make sure they bounce back. I've got yes. a feeling if they do, you're right. I, you know, it, so how celebrities handle this kind of thing certainly has, uh, has an impact. Which is crazy that that's the world we live in now, but yes, absolutely. However, just in case it is not a non-event, of course, we know that Congress is working to put together a package, a disaster, excuse me, an emergency package here in the midst of the coronavirus. It's basically a stimulus package that would provide expanded nutrition assistance for those folks dealing with low-income households. A bill has been developed by the House leaders, which includes about $400 million into emergency food banks and increases in SNAP benefits, as well as a waiver of SNAP work requirements. We also saw that uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been working with Secretary Steve Mnuchin. They have not come to a consensus yet on how this will be handled and the exact amount of money that will be put into that package. I think four hundred million is what they're suggesting. Maybe what the Senate is or what the House is suggesting. But we also saw then that the Senate has canceled the recess they had planned for next week in order to finish working on this package. So the House is expected to vote on it as early as today. Uh, and the Senate is anticipated now, since they're not heading out for a recess, to work on it next week into that as well. Well, I tell you what, Delaney, I don't get proud of Congress very often, but good on them for canceling their uh, their recess yes. and working to solve some issues for the American people. I think yeah, that's I fantastic. That was, yeah, I did too. And it's actually a little surprising that um, they haven't, I guess, worked on a way to cancel or telecommute, you know, because so many other businesses are doing that. Right, right. In fact, uh, commodity brokers just got approval from the NFA to telecommute oh, wow. so long as they've got a way to connect with the office. So we were just talking about that here in the office. Yeah. I've got two stories that are tied together. Delaney, can I read them both? Yes. Perfect. The first one is uh, related to what we have seen happen in the crude oil market over the past week. As we talked about with Ted Seifert on Monday, Saudi Arabia called Russia's bluff on uh, production cuts and oil prices, and they have just started flooding the market with cheap oil. There was a report out earlier today from Reuters that Saudi Arabia is pushing oil out to its buyers with prices as low as $25 per barrel. I saw a tweet that it is now cheaper to go to KFC and get a family-size bucket. Excuse me. It is cheaper to get a barrel of oil than a KFC family-size bucket. That's how cheap wow. oil has gotten in Europe and Asia as they are really looking at taking market share away from the Russians. So that's potentially good news for the summer driving season here in the U.S., assuming people are driving. The second part of this story is bad news for American agriculture. The U.S. ethanol industry just finished um, a week where we saw margins drop to an eight-year low for this time of year as concerns over this price collapse in crude oil is a big part of it, and also concerns that people just aren't going to be driving as much, even if oil prices get cheaper, because this coronavirus is going to keep them trapped in their house. Whether they're working from home or canceling vacations, all of those things need crude. So there has been quite a bit of frustration in the ethanol industry this week, Delaney. Absolutely. That's crazy that you can buy a bucket of chicken, or you can buy a, bu a barrel of oil for ch cheaper than a bucket of chicken. 
Right. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, that is crazy. And I have not priced KFC. That was on Twitter. I don't know how accurate it is. Listeners take it with a grain of salt, but uh, it certainly seems reasonable. Barrel of oil is now cheaper than a steak at any place other than Applebee's right now. Yeah, that's crazy. What other news do you have for us, Delaney Hell? Well, I have one other important piece of news I think is another step in the right direction as you look at Congress and USDA and those folks out in D.C. making decisions, working to make things a little easier for folks back here in the heartland, especially those who are affected by extreme weather in 2019. We saw the Department of Agriculture's Risk Management Agency is moving forward with a reduction in crop insurance rates for cropland protected by 28 levees in states bordering the Missouri River. So essentially, folks that live in these parts of the country, looking in Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, you will have reduced crop insurance rates for 2020. They said they wanted to add some flexibility this year, and so it helps to allow those farmers to stick on or hang on one year longer here, adjusting some of those rates that they'll have to pay in. Okay. All right. Well, anything that can uh, help out those growers who have been impacted by the flooding or potential flooding along those rivers and those levee routes is uh, good news. Absolutely. And it's crazy to think that there are still some levees in those parts that are still being repaired. Well, you know, it's crazy, but it's also not that crazy considering the extent of the damage that that flooding did last spring. I mean, that was catastrophic and the river levels were, were high all summer. So, you know, I'm guessing they just couldn't get the crews and the machines and whatnot out there to make things happen. I'm guessing you're right, Mike. Well, Delaney, I just have one final reminder for our listeners. Monday, March 16th, is the final day to get into your um, FSA offices and get signed up for ARC, individual or county, or PLC for your coverage. Um, They're closing that on March 16th. I did reach out to the FSA to ask if you didn't do anything, do you just continue your current election? And I have not heard back. So even if you're pleased with what you have, whether it's Art County, which is what most growers in the Midwest signed up for, um, get in there, at least give them a call, set up an appointment, and reconfirm that uh, that is going to continue. You've got until Monday. So get out those phones right now while you're listening. Call your FSA office if you haven't already and get that set up, Delaney. All right. Deadline's quickly approaching. Mike, why don't you... Yes, they are. Why don't you uh, take us over into the markets for today? All right. Let's do that. Bear with me one second here while I pull up my markets for today. We've got mixed trade in the grains. Corn ended higher. Beans were lower after substantial substantial gains early in the day. We had a 25 cent range in soybeans earlier today. It was kind of a kind of a nuts day. And wheat is um, lower on the day. Taking a look at the corn market, May corn was up a penny at 366 and three quarters. The December up one and three quarters to close at 373 and a half. In soybeans, May contract down 10 and a half cents, closing the day at 849 even. November down eight and a quarter to finish at 864 and three quarters. Over in Chicago wheat, the May contract down a quarter penny at 505 and a quarter. December down two and a quarter, closing the day at 523 even. Looking over at the world of livestock, remember listeners, livestock was trading on expanded trading limits today, so the live cattle limit was $4.50, feeder cattle limit was $6.50, and hogs were $4.50 as well. Looking at the markets, oh boy, well, we 
used those new limits. I'm afraid it was to the downside. April live cattle down the limit, 450 at 95.57.50. June live cattle also limit down today, closing at 89.75. Feeder cattle not quite limit down, but very close, particularly in the April. April was lower by six dollars, 42 and a half cents, to wrap the day at 112.60. The May contract down six dollars, 27 and a half cents at 114.47.50. And lean hogs, same story as live cattle, limit down across the board. April limit down at 56.37.50. May also limit down at 62.70. One of the few bright spots in the markets today was the world of dairy. The March contract was able to find four cents to the upside, closing at 16.34, while the April was down a penny, wrapping the day at 15.89. Delaney, you want to tell us about our interview for today? Absolutely, Mike. Well, we're talking with Dr. Katie Clevenger, who is a vet out on the East Coast. She's going to chat with us about a new disease that could have drastic impacts in the cattle industry. Well, we are chatting today with Dr. Katie Clevenger of Blue Ridge Animal Clinic out on the East Coast in Virginia, talking about a new disease that could be a concern for the U.S. cattle industry. Katie, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Yep. Good to talk with y'all. Katie, just so our listeners have a better idea of the agricultural footprint that you take care of, explain to us the demographics from a livestock side of the animals that you're seeing in your neck of the woods out there in Virginia. Sure, yeah. So we're a rural mixed animal practice. Um, I myself am one of the mixed animal practitioners. Um, We're probably about 80% beef, um, just a few remaining small dairy herds in our area. Um, We also do a fair amount of small ruminant work, um, heavy in camelids and goats in our area. Um, And then, of course, the mixed animal practice stays busy um, with dogs and cats. But like I say, um, we're pretty spread out. Um, We cover, you know, we'll drive anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to to meet all of our clients' needs. Um, And so we are very much rural. um, And, you know, testing and and diagnostics are a little bit more limited in our area. um, But we really enjoy our clients. So. And it sounds like your clients have been seeing some new challenges. Uh, Dr. Clavenger, can you bring us up to speed on what is happening with this tick-borne protozoa that is, uh, you've noticed here over the last uh, little while? Right, that's exactly right. So um, there's a little bit of talk about the new um, tick that's carrying this disease, the Asian longhorn tick. Um, and back in probably 2018 is when the, the tick itself started getting a lot of publicity. Um, and it was first being noticed in our surrounding counties in Virginia. Um, as far as the disease, Tyleria, um, it was first noticed um, in Orange County, Virginia. Um, I believe they have the timeline correct. Um, and then it jumped over to Augusta County. And we're located in Rockbridge County, um, neighboring Augusta. Um, And so the tick was found um, a few summers back, and there was a lot of talk about what we could do to control um, the tick population. And then shortly after that, um, we started hearing about Tyleria itself. Um, Our first case that the clinic noticed um, was in October of 2019. Um, Really good um, cow-calf client um, who called us up on emergency one weekend after having several adult mature cows um, be found dead out in the field. And so um, we knew it was a, an outbreak of some kind. Um, and certainly whenever you go into a situation like that, you know, you have a lot of questions. Um, but just based off of the severity of what he was seeing in the cows and, you know, what we perceived as a high mortality rate, um, my husband and I went on the call together and in the truck, you know, the conversation kind of started, 
we wonder if this could be that new disease um, that everyone had been talking about. And Katie, as you look at this disease, I've been reading up on it a little bit. I'm by no means an expert, and you're definitely more of an expert than we are on this. But it sounds like this type of disease was really developed, or the tick itself, maybe you can clarify that for us, was developed or or came to be in other countries. Do we know, have any idea of, of how it migrated here to the U.S.? Sure, yeah. So Tyleria itself is, is a protozoal disease, um, and it's found, you know, across the world. It's, it's um, an endemic disease in a lot of areas, um, but it's specifically this species, the Orientalis species, that seems to be most pathogenic or disease-causing. Um, and even more specific than that, um, the Akita cirivar um, is, is the most deadly. Um, and so the tick itself, it's um, presumed that it potentially came over in shipment of livestock, um, Specifically, I've read a couple papers that reference the introduction of the Wagyu cattle um, and the transportation of those cattle um, really across the world, but obviously particularly into the United States. Um, and it's just assumed that the Asian longhorn tick in transportation, um, several of those must have been carrying um, this Tyleria um, species, the Orientalis, and that's where the introduction has come. Um, the tick itself, you know, will feed off of any mammalian species, I think even birds. And so that's how it's being transported, you know, across the country is mostly through wildlife, but obviously through livestock transport as well, I believe. Um, and then, of course, along with that tick, um, the Tyleria is just following suit. So this sounds like it is definitely a troubling disease. I, I read in an article in which you were featured that the mortality rate once cattle are infected is typically 1% to 5%, but can be as high as 50%. And then even if they do recover, they're oftentimes chronic carriers of the disease. What should growers be watching for? What are some of the early symptoms that uh, cattle could be suffering? How can we catch this thing before it becomes a 50% mortality rate issue in a herd? Sure, sure. And so it's kind of a difficult conversation to have um, because, again, there's several different species of Tyleria, some of which um, cause no appreciable symptoms. Um, But with the Orientalis species specifically, um, it causes an anemia. Um, With a lot of the other species, they can more severely affect white blood cells. But, again, the Orientalis um, really causes a a destruction of the red blood cells. And so um, signs of anemia can be anything from weakness um, to dyspnea or shortness of breath. Um, even staggering around, um, and that's, you know, those, the muscles and the brain just craving oxygen and, and a lack thereof due to the anemia. And so with the Orientalis, unfortunately, you know, there's usually no symptoms till we're, we're at death's door, essentially. Um, but definitely, you know, I think we're encouraging more people to do more testing just so we can get an idea of the seroprevalence or how many animals have been exposed already in our area. Um, because treatment is just not an option. You know, in theory, there's reports of blood transfusions helping these animals, but that can be quite costly and really often unattainable, especially in an outbreak situation. Um, and so I think we're encouraging, like I said, you know, more people to just start looking for it, be aware what the prevalence is in their own herds, and then definitely any animals that are displaying signs of anemia, um, which in our area traditionally um, was attributed to anaplasmosis, um, those particular animals we've now been testing for both anaplasma and a tyleria. Um, once they're showing symptoms, 
since treatment's not available um, in our country, um, the biggest thing that we can do is just supportive care, you know, hospitalization, nursing care, um, try to reduce stress on these animals um, because of the disease itself, but again, because of the anemia. Um, the more stressed they are, the more they'll experience the effects of that. And Katie, so far, this disease has only been located, as I understand it, on the East Coast in Virginia and West Virginia. But what's the concern of it spreading to herds, you know, into the Ohio, Indiana area and further into some cattle country areas? Yeah, I think there's a great concern for that. I think, um, you know, the disease has a lot of research yet to be done, um, but there's some really good research on the tick itself. Um, and from my reading, it's suspected that the tick is going to be um, really set um, for reproduction stages and life stages anywhere on the East Coast, from Maine to North Carolina, I believe I read, and on the West Coast, um, from Oregon all the way you know down through Northern California. Um, and then as far as spread across the West, um, I think it's quite possible, again, you know, just following other um, tick populations. Um, one paper um, says from Louisiana northward all the way up into Wisconsin and Ohio, um, they think the tick is going to be able to thrive in those areas. And so I think with the tick growth and the expanding tick population, you know, we're just going to see this disease start to follow it. Yeah, and we're heading into, you know, tick season, so to speak, as things start to warm up. But really, there is nothing we can do then to prevent this in our herds, is what I'm understanding? Yeah, you're, yep, that's exactly right. Um, there's a few papers for some of the other Tyleria species um, that discuss, you know, infection, so known infection, infecting animals um, with the disease itself, and then placing them on, like, oxytetracycline products, or excuse me, tetracycline products. And the idea there is, although once affected tetracyclines aren't helpful um, in the beginning stages of infection, um, they can allow the animals to be exposed without allowing over-replication and then clinical disease to follow. Um, but definitely for the orientalis species, you know, I don't think there's been any research um, in that treatment protocol or exposure protocol. And so, yeah, it's a scary disease because just like you said, no prevention and, and no diagnosis written treatment um, either. And so it's something that is likely going to have to just run its course to some extent. Um, and fortunately, at least in our experience in this area, you know, we've had animals die from the disease, yes, um, but it was, it was for the most part self-limiting in those herds um, and, and luckily was not completely detrimental to them. And I guess, Katie, looking at a final question, when you look at vaccine, vaccines, not necessarily to this disease, but just in general for the livestock or cattle industry, how many livestock need to be infected or what, I guess, process or what part of the cycle does it need to get to before we see folks investing money in research to have vaccines for diseases like this? Yeah, to get enough publicity, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think... From my understanding, there, there's already efforts um, into developing a vaccine and just trying to get a better idea of this disease itself. Um, you know, historically, protozoal infe infections are some of the hardest to treat and develop preventative measures against. 
um, protozoa are difficult. You know, they've been around for a long time for a reason. Um, and so they behave much differently than different viruses and bacteria that we're familiar with. Um, but like I say, I think there are efforts um, to develop, you know, preventative measures against it. I don't know of any details, um, but I know that the Virginia, Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine has um, been, been leading the way, at least in our area, and I think, you know, on the East Coast in research. Got it. Well, we know we've got quite a few cattle folks that listen to the podcast, so hopefully you've been able to share some insight for them, what to watch this season, assuming hopefully they don't get this disease into their cattle herd. Dr. Katie Clevenger, thank you so much for joining today. Yes, thank you all. Well, again, a big thank you there to Dr. Clevenger. Hopefully we don't see it continue to spread, but it sounds like that's probably the case. So be alert. Pay attention if you need to re-listen to it. Or There was a great article that she was featured in on Drovers recently. So there are some resources out there to help you stay vigilant in monitoring your cattle herds. Yep, vigilance, I think, is the name of the game, not just for uh, for that disease that I already can't pronounce the name of, Tilleria orientalis. Am I close, Delaney? I think it was pronounced Tileria orientalis. You nailed it. Atta girl, Delaney Howell. That's what it was. Stay vigilant against that and all of the other diseases that can impact your herd. And stay vigilant against other changes happening in agriculture. These are the kind of changes we talk about on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So get caught up. If you've missed an episode or two or ten, you can find them all on our website at agnewsdaily.com, as well as you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just pull us up at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.